2013, led by Professor Sue Yendel at the University of Sheffield, is exploring how care arrangements currently in crisis in parts of the UK can be made sustainable and deliver wellbeing outcomes. We aim to support policy and practice actors and scholars to conceptualise sustainability in care as an issue of rights, values, ethics and justice, as well as of resource distribution. Our Care Matters series includes publications, podcasts and blogs from our team and others working towards sustainable care. Hello everyone, my name is Camilla. I'm a PhD student at the University of Sheffield. And today, as part of this Care Matter podcast series, I'm going to interview Sue Yandel. Sue Yandel is Professor of Sociology in the Department of Sociological Studies at the University of Sheffield. And she's the Director of the Centre for International Research on Care, Labour and Equalities based in the University Faculty of Social Science. Sue is also the principal investigator for the ESRC Large Grant Funded Sustainable Care Research Program. And she's a funding editor in chief of the International Journal of Care and Caring, a journal of the policy press established in 2017. Sue's research has focused on the relationship between work and care, on how social and employment policies affect women and men's caring role through their life. She has led over 40 externally funded research projects and has published widely on care, caring, gender, and work. She has also participated in many international collaborations, which allow her to establish precious comparison between different national systems of care. Sue, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me about your research today. So for my first question, um, I'm going to ask you a bit more about the Sustainable Care Research Programme. Could you give me an overview of the research aim of this programme? Thank you, Camille. Yes, of course, I'd be very happy to talk about the Sustainable Care Programme. Um, the programme was set up in the wake of the passage of the Care Act 2014, which was a major review of the law in England, and there was parallel developments in legislation across the rest of the UK. So it was an important moment to start thinking about care and what it delivers for individuals, for families, for communities, and the systems and wider societal arrangements which underpin it. We also knew at that time that care was in quite a difficult state, particularly in England, and we knew that there were challenges for the future because we expected uh, that there would be increasing demand for care, but a problem with delivering it. And so we set the programme up with research teams based on a number of universities that are collaborating together within the programme. First of all, to look at the systems that we have in place, the formal arrangements through which we um, organise care in our country. And so one of the projects led by Catherine Needham at the University of Birmingham is looking at how we can compare what we can learn from the systems which have been running in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland for several decades now and trying to understand what we can learn from the different investments that they have made, the different choices they've made about priorities and the different outcomes that they've achieved. So that's ongoing work, but very interesting and important work. Alongside that, we've got work looking at the costs and contributions of care. So that ranges from statistical work, trying to understand what our publicly funded systems of care will need to spend in order to deliver certain kinds of outcomes, um, in order to 
stay in a steady state or whether we can expect to improve uh, the services that we offer to individuals and bearing in mind the demographic and other changes which are underpinning those. We've got work looking at the role of technology in the sustainability of care arrangements and that's in particular at the moment looking at different ways in which local authorities are investing in technology and the kinds of ways in which they're implementing that and the sorts of outcomes that's producing for people who use the care system. And we've also been making a particular study led by Shireen Hussain at the University of Kent, which is looking at migrant labour in our care system, which is an important, although a minority element of the workforce in care, but it's particularly large in London and the South East. We're looking very much at the challenges that arise from changes to immigration legislation and the other arrangements which are surrounding Britain's departure from the EU. Alongside that work on systems, we also think it's really important to study the work and relationships of care. So in that part of the programme, we're looking at home care, uh, the way in which new ideas are being explored by different providers of care about how we might arrange for people, particularly older people who need support at home on a daily or regular basis, how that care can be best provided and what sorts of issues arise both for the care workers who provide that, the providers who are responsible for organising it and for the individuals who experience it. We're looking at the big challenge, which I'll come back to perhaps later in our conversation about combining work and care, which is, of course, where your own PhD is located. And we've recently published an important survey about the experiences that people who combine work and care are having, and that's available on our website. And we're also, through the work led by Magella Kilkey, looking at care in and out of place. And that's focusing on people who are ageing and uh, have care needs, but who are either people who've migrated to the UK, initially came here perhaps to work and to build their families and their lives, and are now at the end of that period of their life where they're beginning to require care themselves, and thinking about their experiences of being old in the society to which they migrated. And we're also looking at UK nationals who've gone overseas to spend their retirement and at some of the experiences that they're having and the difficulties which some of them are encountering. So you have worked closely with Carers UK for over 15 years. Could you tell me more about your collaboration with them? Of course, yes. Carers UK um, has been a very important partner for Circle, uh, both in the period in which it's been based at the University of Sheffield, as it is now, and prior to that, when it was at the University of Leeds, where Uh, We were based for about nine years. The work I began with Carers UK was part of a European project called Action for Carers and Employment. And it was how I first came into direct contact with Carers UK when they appointed me to evaluate part of that programme of work. Later, when they got a second tranche of funding for that work, which was a multinational project, but with a very important element in the UK, where um, Carers UK were working with universities and with employers, we were looking at a programme of research to understand the experiences that people of working age who are carers have, both in being in the labour market, but also if they drop out of the labour market or they are outside of it for other reasons, their relationship with getting into or managing outside of the labour market. And 
Part of the work that we developed there was a major study called the Caring Employment and Services Study, which we reported in a series of, of um, documents which were used extensively around the time of the review of the National Care Strategy in 2007. And so that work, which was a major survey of, of working carers in Scotland, Wales and England, and in a study of the particular support that they received in different local authorities, again in England, Scotland and Wales, um, was quite an important step in understanding what is it that carers need at work, what is it that carers need to enter work, and what support arrangements do they need in their localities so that there is an infrastructure that enables them to participate in society like other people. And while we were doing that piece of work with them, we were able to benefit from the recently published findings of the 2001 National Census. And that census had, for the very first time, asked every citizen if they were providing regular care to another person. So that was quite an exciting period in which Carers UK wanted to really explore as much as they could what we could learn from the census data about carers. And for my team, and I work particularly with a statistician called Lisa Buckner, who's still at the University of Leeds. And Lisa and I worked very hard to draw as much as we possibly could out of the evidence base that's located in the census data. And of course, a national census, unlike a representative survey, a national census enables you to look at um, levels of detail geographically at a very small scale. So we were able to produce reports for individual local authorities and to understand the way in which caring is distributed geographically, which we found maps very closely onto socioeconomic deprivation. And so within any particular locality, it's in the most deprived communities that there will be the largest proportion of carers and the largest proportion of carers who have particularly difficult needs, which make their own lives stressed or, or difficult or impoverished in some way, and we, where services need to provide support. So that was a really important piece of work that we did together. We later worked on the ACTIVE project, which was an acronym for Advancing Knowledge of Technology for Vitality and Independence in Later Life. And that was a project where we were looking at the telecare arrangements that were put in place in two local authorities for older people and their carers. And we did a major study looking at in detail, and I worked closely with our colleague Kate Hamblin on that project, um, but that was also developed with Carers UK. And of course, now they're part of their non-academic partner in the collaboration agreement for the Sustainable Care Programme. And they play a very important role for us in identifying issues, in helping us to cascade our message out, in supporting the impact that we can have with our research, and very often in um, helping us to craft research questions which really need to be answered. Thank you, Stu. Um, that's very insightful. About the International Journal of Care and Caring that you launched in 2017, could you tell me more about it and um, the specific issues the journal is concerned with? The journal has been a really exciting development for me, and it's been a great privilege to work with my co-editors, um, Michael Fine, who of course is a very well-known academic in the English language field. Um, he's written extensively about care and is based in Australia. My other co-editor is based in Taiwan, and so she is a contributor to much of the important work that's done in East Asia on care and caring, particularly around people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, her name is Wei Ching Cho. And of course, our close collaboration and 
partnership with Joan Tronto from the USA, who of course is an absolutely um, major figure in care theory and in understanding of the ethics and politics of care. And Joan Tronto, um, who's recently retired from the University of Minnesota, but remains a, an active member of our editorial group. And she's been a great, a great support in developing the journal. We needed to establish a new journal because there wasn't really a journal in which work on care and particularly work on carers was universally welcomed. And so we established it so that there would be a journal which would be specifically designed to advance scholarship and debate in the expanding field of care and caring. And by care, we are in the journal, we're talking about the care of older, disabled, and uh, people with long-term or chronic sick conditions. And it's a multidisciplinary and international journal. So we're concerned with care and caring for people of any age who have those long-term conditions, disabilities or frailties, and people who are seriously ill at the end of life. And we're particularly interested in papers which explore a wide range of issues, focusing from the economic to the organisational to the familial, ethical, political, social, legal or um, transnational issues around care. And so it's been really exciting to work with a, a group of scholars who are on our wider editorial group and our editorial advisory board, some of whom are very distinguished scholars from around the world, um, to shape the journal, which is now published four times a year. We have um, a regular series of peer-reviewed research articles. Sometimes we publish those as special issues on a particular topic, but our regular issues are across the board. And we publish articles from a wide spectrum of scholars, and we've been delighted with the international response that we've received. So in the last few months um, and over the last couple of years, we've published articles from Russia, from Africa, from uh, articles to do with um, areas of East Asia, which are not very widely commented on, as well as having a very steady flow of really high quality papers coming from Canada, Australia, across the range of Europe, European countries, North America, and we're beginning to also receive papers from parts of South America and, and Africa, and that's something which is very important to us. So it's a journal which is dedicated to academic research, but we also feel a responsibility because of Caring Caring touches on so much more than academic life. So we have a debates and issues section in the journal, and that's designed for anyone who wants to write something controversial or which they think is about an important issue or to comment on a new development. Um, and so some of the contributions to that have been people from trade unions, from carers organisations, from charities, from a variety of people speaking from different perspectives about their particular experience of running a programme, introducing a new scheme, offering a different type of break for carers, for example. So those are items that we also regularly publish and we have specific editors to support the development of that part of the journal. We've been really excited by the way that's, that's um, become an important feature of the journal. Uh, and just coming up uh, in the next issue that will, can be coming out in August, I'm thrilled that we've got a major editorial article written by Joan Tronto and Michael Fine, which focuses on the COVID-19 
a crisis that's engulfed the world in 2020 and invites our readers and contributors to reflect on the significance of COVID-19 for care and caring and to contribute articles to a special themed issue that we'll be publishing in 2021. Thank you, Sue. That's really impressive work and that's really good that the journal is mixing so many perspectives on care. Now um, about carer combining uh, care and work. So this is my PhD area, but maybe could you let our auditors know what the main pressure that carer face when combining work and care? Yes, of course. Um, this has been a, an area of particular interest for me throughout my career, although earlier in my career, my main research was based on looking at the situation of women who were entering the labour market for the first time as, as working mothers. But about 20 years ago, I became interested in the area of care that I now specialise in, which is about the care of people of any age with disability, illness or uh, towards the end of life and the particular issues that that raises for people. And this is, of course, a growing issue in our, in our world. It's uh, a really important question. So what we're looking at when we look at working carers or at people of working age who are carers, so I think both of those categories are important, we're looking at their ability to participate in the life of their country like anyone else. In the 21st century, it's become normal for adults to participate in their labour markets. It's not expected that women will mostly stay at home as they did in the early to middle part of the 20th century, for example, um, and raise children as housewives. That's, that seems a very distant past to most of us now. And so this expectation that everyone will be participating in the labour market poses challenges for those who have particular responsibilities or make the choice to provide care for someone close to them who needs rather more help than is normal for um, for other adults. So that needs help in everyday life and needs their support sometimes on a crisis or unexpected basis. And so what we've tried to do in the research that I've led on working carers is to understand the phenomenon, but also to look at what policy responses might be helpful to enable carers to combine paid work with their unpaid care more readily. And thinking about carers around the world, from your research with academics in other countries, are carers treated differently in other care systems? I think probably it would be right to say that caring has a set of common experiences everywhere in the world. I often say when I'm reading research from other parts of the world that I read a quotation from a carer that's cited in a research article and I think I've heard those exact words spoken to me by somebody in England and that person might have been living in Tokyo or in Sydney or in a small town in Finland and yet they're saying the same things. So there is a, there is a universality in the experience of caring and that's because it's part of the human condition and it's normal for people to take care of those they love. So there is something that's common, but there are also differences. So for example, if we look at the Nordic countries where there has been a tradition, particularly in Sweden and Denmark, of universalism in welfare policy, then we see that carers were perhaps forgotten for quite a long time in public policy, while certainly during the mid to later part of the 20th century, 
very extensive public services were designed, which emphasised the value of individuality and, and independence for all citizens. And so those systems were predicated on different assumptions about what individuals wanted and valued than perhaps they are in other countries. If by contrast, we look at parts of East Asia, and I've spent time talking to carers organisations in both Japan and Taiwan in recent years to learn more about their approach. And of course, this would also apply to the to, to China. The approach to caring there is very much informed by the Confucian tradition, in which there are a particular set of expectations about how younger family members will respect and value and support older family members. But of course, as in other countries, those historic traditions become affected by the social the currents of social change, which you know, which occur around the world. And so Tokyo is just as affected by the pressures of work and care as is London. Uh, the Confucian tradition means it's perhaps articulated and thought about in a slightly different way, but it's just as hard to combine work and care in Tokyo and just as important for the state that people do that because Japan has a shortage of labour. And so it's very it's a very important public policy objective to enable people to manage work and care in Japan just as it is, I believe, in most parts of Europe. Similarly, if we look at some of the Mediterranean Rim countries, so if we look at Italy or Spain, for example, these countries have a very strong tradition of reliance on family. So their social systems, their welfare systems, whilst they've changed very significantly in the last 10, 15, 20 years and are not the very different places that they perhaps were in the 1980s or 90s. But there are countries where it is still assumed that the family will be the first port of call, and indeed that it's legislated that it must be the first port of call. And so some of those countries have developed their systems much more recently, and there is a very deeply embedded expectation that families will provide. I would place the UK and the English system in a slightly different category to those, although I think that the expectation that people will care for their elderly relatives, for example, is very, very strong in Britain too. It's not enshrined in our constitution as it is in Japan. It's not legislated for around measures in the way that it is in, in Germany and in some other countries, some states in Canada, for example. But nevertheless, it's normal that a person in their middle age who has an elderly parent pays some attention to that person's needs and makes some does some takes some steps to look after them. So I think that our systems are rather different. We have a more residual welfare state than the Nordic countries, for example. Uh, we have a less familistic expectation than perhaps Italy has, but nevertheless, the broad uh, situation that I would see is a merge towards the state expecting that services are required to support caring, whilst families also have to play their part. And that is becoming, I think, a universal expectation. The family cannot do this alone. The state cannot resource it all. So it's about how we integrate those contributions and how other institutions like work, like our health service, like the way we organise our local authorities, how those also understand and respond to the circumstances in which their citizens find themselves. 
And has anything changed for carers since the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK? Are they more visible now? Well, as I'm speaking with you and you're a French national, I shall use a French phrase, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. I think we can definitely say that things have changed, but really all we're seeing is an exaggeration of the issues that existed before. I think the main things that have happened to carers since the pandemic arrived, and particularly since the lockdown was introduced in March of this year, is that there's more caring to do, but that in some respects it's more difficult to do that caring. So some people who were caring at a distance, which is a common experience for many middle-aged people caring for elderly parents, they often don't live together and they maybe have to travel at weekends to provide that support. That's been a really difficult challenge for some carers to to uh, to manage because they haven't been allowed to go and visit and they've had to provide support remotely um, and arrange other other support. I think there have been difficulties too. Some people have brought a family member into the home who normally lives independently because they felt they would be safer and they would be able to see them in that circumstance. We know some of that has happened. And I think we've found that people who are already living with the people they care for perhaps husbands and wives caring for somebody with a long-term illness, have experienced greater degree of isolation and strain than even was experienced before. But this is more caring and it's more strain and it's in the context of some services being suspended. So quite a lot of carers of people with Alzheimer's disease or one of the dementias are finding that the community services, which were a big support to them, Uh, that they would go to or take the person they cared for to once or twice a week are not happening. And of course, it's difficult for people to understand what's happening when they have got that kind of disease. So the, the lack of services, the fact that it can be difficult to get new services if a care need arises, um, despite many local authorities doing their very best within the within the period of the pandemic, I think it's generally understood that It's been more difficult to get support during the pandemic than it was before. Some special things have happened. The Scottish government has introduced an additional payment for carers um, to help them with the financial strain of the current period. Many people are caring whilst on furlough. They're perhaps caring with their children at home as well as their normal caring responsibilities. So these people are becoming intensive sandwich carers, if you like. That's a difficulty for many people. So quite a lot has changed. I think we might find that a little bit of awareness has been raised as well. I think perhaps we'll find that carers are more visible and more people are doing caring. So we may hope perhaps that the phenomenon of caring and the need for a positive and constructive policy response to caring might be more forthcoming in the future. And about that, so what do you think are the most important issues the coming reform of social care needs to address? Well, of course, we've been waiting quite a long time now for the reform of, of uh, adult social care. The present government, led by Boris Johnson, has promised to deliver a reform before the end of the year. And we hope that that may still be forthcoming despite the pandemic. But of course, previous governments during the 2010s had promised um, a reform which didn't materialise. So we know that there's a massive challenge here for our society. We have got left behind in terms of the 
a planned, uh, properly thought through, comprehensive, widespread approach to how we're going to approach population ageing and the rising needs for care in our society. So there are some big challenges for the government to address and for us all, and all parts of society will need to play their part in that. So the pressures on carers that I mentioned in my previous response when you asked about the virus, of course, those still apply. And the penalty that carers often pay, as I frequently refer to it, is a triple one. It's poor health, which may be mental or physical health, but in one way or another, carers' health, when they care intensively and for long periods, tends to be damaged in some way. There's reduced income, which may tip carers into poverty or may simply mean that managing is more difficult for them. But that's a very common experience for carers, that budgeting becomes more of a strain and working out where the resources you need are going to come from is more of a challenge. And the third element is the isolation and exclusion from normal parts of society, which we know is very common. So these are all that the pressures on carers absolutely need to be addressed by the reform of social care. And I will be very disappointed if that doesn't happen, particularly because the Care Act 2014 promised additional support for carers, but didn't deliver it. And so I think it's really important that we make good that deficit from the previous legislation. Beyond that, I would say there are a number of other really important challenges that government will need to address. The unfairness of the funding system will be a really critical one. And I think that's the one that government is most conscious of and speaks about most often. They're very aware of the fact that for people who require a long-term period in a residential care home, usually because of mental impairment in later life, particularly the dementias, those people are often paying hugely out of their own pockets for that care. That can run into hundreds of thousands of pounds for some families, which is an enormous price, which other families don't pay. And of course, is a striking contrast with the way in which British people have become used to accessing health, which is free at the point of demand. So I think that's a really big challenge and they need to find a way of doing that without just making everybody pay more. If you address what you perceive to be unfairness by making everybody pay more, then maybe it's not unfair in the same way after that, but nevertheless, it will still be a problem, I think, for people. We've got a huge and growing problem of unmet need that's emerged during the period of austerity, particularly. That's been growing in recent years. We've now probably got more in excess of 1.5 million older people who require help in daily life who don't get it. So we have to find a way of putting more resources into the system so that those people can get the help they need. We've got a big shortage of labour and fragmentation in the delivery of services. And this has become very clear, of course, in the care homes crisis that's emerged. You know, there isn't a ready supply of alternative labour. We've got many care homes and home care agencies operating on minimal staffing in the best of times, so that during the virus, that's become a really acute problem. And we've got working conditions for those staff, which are basically unacceptable in a job of such importance done by so many people. So we've got to deal with zero hours contracts in care. We've got to deal with low pay. We've got to do with people whose pay and conditions combined mean they're not paid the the equivalent of the national minimum wage, for example. So those are really big issues. And I think we've got to address the fact that whilst we know that there are ways in which technology can improve a person's experience of care or of being a carer, 
we haven't moved very far down the line of actually delivering on that. And that there are pockets of excellence in a few local authorities. And there are examples that every researcher who's looked at research on technology and care could show you where technology has transformed someone's life and made the existence of a disabled person or of a carer immeasurably better than it was without the technology. But we haven't turned that out at scale and we haven't delivered it in a way which is universally available. So there's a big challenge there, I think, for the government also to embrace the power of technology. And it requires what some people have called a long-term care revolution. You know, we're looking not just for incremental change or a little bit of tinkering here and there with a few things that are wrong. Our system is fundamentally broken and needs radical and systematic change, which will take a decade to achieve, but must involve a bold vision right at the beginning. So those would be the messages I would be trying to convey to the government. Thank you, Sue. That's very insightful. And I like the term long-term care revolution. So for my last question, what message do you have for policymakers about um, carers combining unpaid care and work? That can be quite a short message um, because I think the issue at the moment is about care leave. Um, my very strong message to, to policymakers is make care leave available to carers who are at work, but also make it paid. Because if that care leave is unpaid, the vast majority of people who need it will not be able to take it. Many people struggle to make ends meet, and this is going to be an increasing problem, I think, in the future, when I think you know we know that we're facing an economic crisis as we come out of the pandemic. So it'll be even more important that if people need time away from work to provide care, that they're not doing so by losing income. So making it paid is really, really important. But my other message would be to take a look around the world and to see the things that are working successfully in other countries and to recognise that the countries that have made the most progress are offering a combination of different measures. And some of the measures that they're offering are ones that we already have started to introduce, although in a fairly modest way. So the ability to work flexibly, the ability to change your working hours or to modify the place where you deliver your work um, so that it fits better with your caring responsibilities have been things we've made quite a lot of steps forward with in the last decades in this country. But we do so always at the ultimate expense, really, of the carer. The carer makes the choice to work part time so they get paid less. The carer chooses flexibility and, and what we seem to be finding is that people who make some of those choices find that routes to training or to progression are blocked for them. So they're paying a penalty in that respect often. So there are excellent examples of employers, some of whom you've studied, Camille, yourself, where every effort is being made to try to modernise work in such a way that it makes it compatible with caring. But these are rare examples in the broad spectrum of our employment uh, system. And we know that there are far too many people whose employers still think that their personal life and the responsibilities they have outside of work are nothing to do with them. And people who face dismissal if they can't go to work for a few days because someone is, um, is unwell or who aren't going to have the support that somebody coping with the deterioration of dementia in an elderly relative or the slow progress of a, 
of a serious illness that may be affecting their spouse, which is incredibly difficult for individuals to deal with and cannot but impact their work, but which will be experienced in such a different way if there is support and understanding and flexibility in the workplace. So paid care leave in its variety of forms that we can see in operation around the world and in some businesses in the UK is a really good example of something that could be done. And I would really emphasise to the government that, you know, you've decided to consult on care leave, but don't rule out making it a paid arrangement and think about the ways in which we can cover the cost of that. Some individual employers will find it hard to pay. So we need to think about whether there is some way in which the cost of paid care leave can be shared between the state, the employer and the individual. And to me, that's something that that needs to be thought through and where we could come up with practical proposals that would be workable and could be implemented. Thank you, Sue. Thank you very much for taking part in our Care Matters series. Um, It's been really informative and it's been my pleasure to learn a bit more about your work and your contribution to the field of care and caring.